Hey there. Hey. So I'm trying to decide what to do for vacation this year. Oh yeah? Yeah. What do you uh what do you think we should do? Good question. Um you know, I was thinking this summer it would be a good idea if we went to visit my parents. And we haven't seen them in a while. No, I, the problem is that's not a break for me. Yeah, your parents are hard work, especially your mom. I want to relax. I want to go to the beach. I mean, seriously, if we don't go see them, they can't come see us. They can't travel. It'll be another year before the kids see them. I get two weeks off for vacation. That's it. I'm aware. I want to use it to relax. That's it. I, I, I want to take it easy. Work's been hard this year. I want to go to the beach. What's the problem? Yeah, but we went to the beach last year because yeah. of the same reason. Yeah, and we got to relax. We got to take it easy. That's what I'm talking about. <sighs> That's not what I meant. And you know that. Yes, the beach was fun. We all had a great time. But my father is not going to be around forever. And I don't want to feel like I missed this opportunity to spend time with him. I don't know why we always have to go through this. I wish you could just think about what I need or what the kids need. And it wasn't just... Always about you. Really? Really. So I'm selfish. I'm working 60 hours a week, okay, to pay for all these vacations, all this stuff that we do, so you can make all the decisions? Really? Is that how it's going to work? I'm just some big ATM. I'm going to throw money all over the place so you can make all the decisions. Yeah, go ahead and call me selfish. That makes a lot of sense. I'm selfish. I cannot take this anymore. Like taking care of the house and the kids... Like, that's not a real job? You know, and I work part-time. I pull my share. If it's that important to you to have a break, you should take one. Go to the beach. Call your golf buddies. Do whatever you want. And I'll take the kids. Oh, no, no, I want to take a family vacation. Family vacation. I want to see my kids. I want to spend time with my kids. Well, care about this family as much as you care about your parents. That's what you need to be doing. We're right here. Us! That is so unfair. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. You know what? You're right. You do whatever you want. I'm going to bed. You do that. I'm going to watch a movie. Please do not do that. Good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. Why does it always have to be this hard? Whatever. This is from James 4, 1 through 6. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that a friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. 
That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So we started our uh, sermon series. We're starting our new sermon series on conflict. How did that video hit you? Completely unrealistic, right? You've never had a conversation like that take place in your home? Why are we going to talk about conflict? It's not fun to talk about conflict. It's not fun to watch a video like that. Believe me, I've seen it at least 30 times. Um, I mean, in church, we all, we all love each other, right? We're all unified by God's Holy Spirit. We're all, you know, we're all following God. We never have conflict in our relationships or in our lives. We just get along swimmingly, right? Um, so why are we talking about conflict? Well, one thing to know is, is we're not doing this, I'm not doing this series because I'm so good at it, that I've got this all figured out, or this is natural to me, and in, in fact, this is, this is not my wheelhouse. If, you know, my natural thing, I love to talk about doctrine, theology, you know, I love to get into the Bible and get into history and all that kind of stuff. Getting into this stuff is, is a little out of my comfort zone myself. You know, we all have our heroes that we, from television that we have. You would never guess who my hero was as a kid when I watched TV growing up. It was not the impulsive and reckless Captain Kirk. He was too emotional. He's too focused on green-skinned alien women in short skirts, too impetuous, by rights, he should have gotten the enterprise, you know, destroyed many times over. No, my hero was the calm and ever-rational science officer Spock, right? He always was logical. He always would think through everything he did. He did not get upset. He was not ruled by his emotions like that captain was. Um, and yet, as if, for those who watched the series... There was this ongoing theme of how Spock struggled to understand the emotional reactions of his, his fellow people on the Enterprise. Like, he, he couldn't always get them. In fact, there's a whole episode where the, he ended up being in charge because they were trapped on a planet and he was the senior officer. And, and he turned out to be a lousy leader because he couldn't relate to the emotions, the emotional reactions of his, his crew. And... So, yeah, I related to that. Like, I got that. I, there's times when I feel like an alien watching other people, you know, and, and their reactions. So, this is not a natural area for me. When I started as a pastor, you know, I, I assumed, knew my, my calling and my job was to present the Word of God to the people. That I would come and I would study and, and think it out. And then I would present to you what the truths, the deep truths and insights from God's word. And, and you know, that's, that's the main part. And it is a big part of my job. It is my calling. But I was surprised to find out as a pastor, there's these 
arguments that kept happening over things that had nothing to do with the Bible. Like I couldn't say, well, let me look up a verse to give you the answer on that. Like there's no place in the Bible that says what the color of the carpet should be in the sanctuary. You know, and arguments and people got emotional about stuff and disagreements, you know, who, who, what contract are higher, the, what the bulletin should look like, um, you know. And I mean, I had a conflict once when I did a teaching about conflict um, on Mother's Day. And I guess I shouldn't have done that. You know, like, so there's just, I just kept finding. So my brother, who happens to also be a pastor, um, go figure. Uh, so he was in a group, he, he was in northern Ohio, and there, he had a group that he was involved in where they were doing a training on peacemakers. And, and so kind of the very thing we're going to be doing. And uh, I heard about it. And it was like an over, it was a Friday night, Saturday, an overnight thing. And so I, I drove up from southern Ohio where I was, and I'm like, I need this. So I went through this, this training, and it's really about the same stuff we're going to be doing these next seven to eight weeks and there I learned it was actually being put on by the four C's, which is the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference. And that was my first connection with the four C's. Um, I later became a four C's, and now I'm a four C's pastor. And it's probably part of the reason why I'm here. Like, that, the training was that valuable to me. I'm like, because it takes the principles in Scripture on relationships and interacting with people that are, that are all throughout the scripture, but it pulls it together in an organized way. Where, um, and so I found that it turns out the scripture actually talks quite a bit about the stuff, about how to respond to people, what, what interactions, what, what do you do when there's conflict? If we find out that the, the scriptures speak a lot to that, I don't, I just never picked up on it that much before because I would read it and look for doctrines and theology stuff tend to be. But, but when you dig deeper, there are certain things that um, the Scripture's guiding us on. The, God does teach his people how to learn to deal with conflict in a healthy and positive way. So why talk about this? Well, the first reason is, um, you may have heard one of Jesus said, he says, the second is like it. When Jesus was asked, what's the first and greatest command? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that's, that, that's, that's the most important thing, right? God wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to know us, and he wants us to love him and respond to him. But then Jesus didn't stop there. He says, but the second is like it. In other words, you can't do the first without working at le- on doing the second. And the, the second is Love your neighbor or love others as much as you love yourself. And so because we can't really love God unless we learn to, to learn how better to love and care about other people. So the second is like it. That's one reason. The second reason is we're not as good as it good at it as we think we are. Right? I sort of had this idea that I was calm and rational, but the truth was is I could get just as defensive and angry about things as anyone else. And I would be surprised by how, when there was a conflict, how, how I, couldn't, I couldn't think rationally. And I think we all need to, to, to learn how to do better in the conflict. We could see how other people go wrong. 
I think part of this study will be looking at our own, what's our own natural response? What, what does our heart do when we're in one of these situations? So we're not as good at it as we think. And the third reason is conflict can cause major damage. It oftentimes starts small, but it's like a fire, right? It, it, if it's not put out early, it can grow to do massive damage. And maybe you've seen damage in the result of, of conflict. And so we're going to talk about that aspect. So where are we going to start now? We're going to start at the beginning. And we're going to talk about the nature of conflict because we see it showing up in relationships right at the beginning. So in, in Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything. And in Genesis 2, he, he, he brings together Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and they are in harmony with each other at that point. There's not conflict. There's a verse that says they were naked and they felt no shame, meaning they could, they could trust one another to be with each other. And then they made a choice. They did one thing that God told them not to do, which was eat from the, the forbidden tree. Now, that may seem like a big deal, but what that was is they were deciding... Ultimately, I will do things my way rather than God's way. The one little word that we use in church that captures that idea is called sin. Sin means I will decide for myself how I will live, what is right and what is wrong for me, instead of listening to God. And once we made that decision, that has changed everything throughout the world. It not only affected our relationship with God, it has affected all our relationships with each other ever since. So the first thing they do, it says they start hiding from God. Um, they're, they're, they don't want to be seen by God now, rather than walking with Him and being with Him. And then they begin blaming each other over who's really at fault over this new situation. When God talks to Eve about, here's, what's gonna, here's the result of this choice that you guys made. He says this to her. He says, your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. Now, before, Adam and Eve were meant to be um, working together. They were both given dominion over creation. They were to be partners in in overseeing the world that God had created. And, and now instead, they're going to want different things. One's going to want to go one way, and one's, their desires will be contrary. And the man, Adam, will use his greater strength and aggression to get what he wants. By the way, this is not God telling men to rule over their, life, life, their wives. It is a description of what happens when sin rules in our hearts, right? When we decide we want to do what we want to do rather than what God says, then that's, what, that's the kind of thing that happens. Our, our competing desires and men, instead of being a protector and guardian for their family, rules over the, their pe- others' people. Um, now, when you go on to the story, there's, there's no sign with Adam and Eve that there was actually great conflict. Um, there's no, you know, that, that it was a horrible situation. In fact, instead, they had, they got along well enough to have relations because next thing you know, you have um, two 
couple sons being born, Cain and Abel. But that didn't mean the conflict was ended. In fact, Cain and Abel, the first event we learn in Genesis 4, that Cain is angry. Now, he's actually angry at the Lord. But how can you take it out on the Lord? So he vents his anger upon his brother and kills him. The first murder, fratricide. And, and the consequence of that is alienation. He's sent away from his parents and from, well, there's nobody else at that point, but, but he's sent away. There's alienation introduced. That's what conflict does. And ever since, conflict becomes the operating procedure for humanity. It affects marriages, families, workplaces, neighborhoods, and yes, churches. We've all seen it go about. The Peacemaker Training talks about three triggers for conflict. I want to consider those for a minute. Three things. These are not the conflicts themselves, but three things that kind of set up conflict to happen. And the first one is diversity, God-given diversity. God made us different. That's part of the, the, the joy of creation, that we, we are different. And, in fact, it's good. God wants variety. He wants people to have unique personalities and characteristics. And, and it's, isn't it fun, like when you're getting to know someone at the beginning, like to find out how they're different or, you know, like maybe when you first go off to college and you have a roommate, it's kind of fun to find out, you know, oh, they do this and versus you learn things. But then, you know, if you're living with them, eventually those, those differences become more of a challenge, so diversity can, can be a trigger for conflict. A second one, and this is big, is misunderstandings. Failed communication. We don't always communicate well. In the Peacemaker video, uh, they share a, a great story about this. There were two schools that were um, kind of in, like in the same town almost, and they shared a stadium. So they would have to alternate who got to use on Friday night football like who got to use the stadium for a home game while the other played away. But then, of course, once a year, they played each other, the big, big match. And so they would both be in their own stadium. Well, the stadium did not have a good PA system. This is a while ago. You know, you imagine crackling speakers that don't work very well. And in one of the schools, um, one of the beloved band directors had died. And so over the PA they make an announcement that um, they, they ask, you know, because everyone would have known this person for, for the, the one school. says, you know, so-and-so has passed away this week. We ask that you would do a moment of silence in his honor. Well, the, the part of the stadium where the other school was didn't hear the announcement. And so all of a sudden there's silence in the stadium. What does a band do, a pet band do, when there's silence? They start playing. So they ask for a moment of silence, so the other school's band starts playing a song. Guess what they started playing? Another one bites the dust. I don't know if the, that, that those schools ever could, could uh, heal that conflict. All right? Um, I 
think of one. At a previous church, they had a very antiquated sound system, and it had a three-disc CD changer. And I had been occasionally playing songs, like more updated worship songs. They're kind of a traditional church. And we had an organist. He was a really good organist. And, and he would play, like, pre-worship and, and play a prelude. He'd work really hard on it. He, like, he was, people really appreciated him. Um, and so, I, you know, that was part of the plan. That was fine. And sometimes I would play a song, like, as a special music or a different place in the service. So I'd have the CD in. Well, it turns out that, that when the, you know, the usher would come and just turn on the, the sound system, it would kick the CD player on. And so while John was playing his organ prelude, and it seemed, this must have happened a couple weeks at least, the usher would you know, be getting things ready, turn on, the, just hit the button, and then it would start playing. And it was playing the, the songs that I had been trying to introduce to the congregation. So he assumed I was undermining his playing, that I wanted him to stop. And, um, yeah, he quit. And I don't think he ever, I didn't really actually discover the whole, the CD thing until after he left. And I'm like, yeah, failed communications can lead to conflict. The third thing that can lead to conflict as a trigger for conflict is selfish attitudes. We, we're tired and we get grumpy. And we, we say things in a way we shouldn't. Or we're angry at someone else, but that anger gets aimed at. It puts us in an attitude that, that we'll, we'll say things in a way that, that we know shouldn't. And that leads to, to greater conflict. So those are the triggers. Ultimately, conflict is about competing desires. So let's get to James 4, because James 4 talks about conflicts and what leads to them. And he's, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the churches, and he's talking about quarrels and conflicts within the church. So this happens among and between believers in Christ, not just people out there. And he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you. You have desires, and they're competing with one another. And and what these desires become is they become out-of-control desires. It's not just having the desire that's a problem. It's they take too prominent a spot within our our heart and mind. And so... An out-of-control desire is something that we, we want too much, even if it's a good thing. It may be a good thing that you want, but if you want it so much that it's leading you to, to compete with others or you're not willing to look at the other side of things, that can be an out-of-control desire. Another out of, sign that's an out-of-control desire is it's something you will sin to obtain or sin if it's denied. If you don't get this, you're going to take your ball and go home, right? You're going to be angry and lash out at people if you don't get your way or you'll, you'll do something in order to get it. That's a sign that the desire is out of control in your heart and life. And a third sign of an out-of-control desire is a desire that becomes a demand. I want this, therefore you must 
do that. Or you must give it to me. We impose upon others a demand to, to, to give us the thing that we want. What does James say we, we should do instead? Well, first of all, what, what does that lead to? It says you desire but do not have, so you kill. Now, I, I don't think murder was taking place in the early church. I, I hope not. I hope it didn't get that bad. But I think he's speaking metaphorically like Cain, right? He wanted, didn't have, killed his brother. Jesus says if you harbor anger in your heart against your brother, if you want to murder him in your heart, God sees that. And it's in God's eyes, it's equivalent to murder. You, you kill another, you break off relationships. You push people away. You attack them in some way. Um, that's the, the, those are the actions that, that come out of this conflict. It says you, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You see, ultimately, we should be bringing those desires to God, those unmet desires in our life, and saying, God, this is something I, I desire and want in my life, um, and, and bring it to him, you know, and sometimes it's a matter of committing it to God, saying, I, Lord, you know, I don't know if this is right for me, I commit this to you. Sometimes it's asking God to provide it in his way and in his time. There was a time in my life where I desperately wanted a camper. My parents had camper growing up. We would do, you know, camping over the weekends. And so we, we were actually at a campground, and we were staying with my parents. And I remember walking around the campground thinking, oh, and I had covetousness in my heart, brothers and sisters. Like, you see these mammoth, like, RVs. I knew I couldn't afford that. I was trying to figure out some way to afford a cheap tent camper. And then I realized I have to buy a new vehicle to pull it. And, and, like, and at some point, I, I, did, I did yield that desire to God. And he says, you, you don't really want one of those. You, you have, I have other things that you can do on your weekends. You, when you want to camp, just rent a cabin. Like I really got insight from God on how to meet the desire in my heart. And that a camper would actually be a bad idea. Considering I'm preaching every Sunday anyways. When would I actually get to use it? You know, he kind of pointed out logic to me. Um, remember Spock, right? Um, so, so anyways, the, the, we should be bringing our desires to God and not demanding it of others. And then James goes on to talk about what's, what's going on. It says, you adulterous people, meaning your adultery is not sexual. It's, it's your heart's attitude. You are, are worshiping. You are desiring something other than God at that point. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Wait a second. Friendship with the world is a bad thing? I mean, didn't God love the world? And doesn't God want us to love the people of the world? And Pastor Mitch, didn't you do that whole sermon series on Jonah and about how he shouldn't have been so against the Assyrians and you know, that we should actually give thought to the people out there who don't know the Lord, that don't know their left hand from the right. Well, there's an old church word that I think is helpful in this case. It's called worldliness. Not wordiness, not talking too much. Worldliness. And worldliness is this idea that that the world has captured who you are. 
It's letting the patterns and the ways of, of this world and what they're doing shape you instead of your relationship with the Lord, the relationship with Christ shaping who you are. What voices do you find influencing you in your life? What, what voices do you take in constantly? And they, you, you can't listen to things or watch news shows or television shows or movies without them starting to accumulate an effect upon you. Are you giving time for God to shape you through his word, through fellowshipping with other believers, through meditation? Or are you just taking in so much stuff from this world that it is shaping you to be who you are? That's called worldliness. And that's what's happening. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Don't you know, don't you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He's given us his spirit so that, that we know him and are growing in him and learning to love him. And it will lead us to be different. And then it talks about one of the ways that it will be different in verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The world will stoke our pride and build us up in a prideful way and lead us to be angry. Knowing the Lord will lead us to humility, a right view of ourself in light of the truth of God, in light of the mercy that we've received. So what... What ways does the world kind of provoke us now or lead us to live self-centered lives? Have you heard ads or slogans? Let me give you an example where that, that the world throws out that celebrates ourself. And I'll give you one. You deserve it. Right? Doesn't like half the commercials out there effectively say, you deserve it. You deserve a break today. What other ads or slogans have you heard that celebrate this idea of being selfish? Just do it. Have it your way. I I have that one down. Good one. (laughs) Any other ones? The one with the most toys wins? Eat eat fresh? Okay. All right. That's a problem there. General idea of look out for number one. Uh, Any others come to mind? Good guys finish last. Love yourself and the world will follow. Okay. Yeah. Just do it. Okay. Keep a lookout for that. When you're watching ads, just notice, is it effectively telling you to to be selfish? Be aware of that because that's what worldliness does in our life. James instead calls us back to a, um, to think differently. He jumps, I'm going to jump down to verse 11, that this is beyond our reading, but it, it talks about like when we have that kind of attitude, what does it lead to? And he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them against the law and judges it. 
When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who, you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? When it stokes our pride, it leads us to put ourselves in the, in the, the role of judging others. It leads us to slander, which means to speak evil against, against our brothers and sisters. That's ultimately, when, when, when we're not turning to the humility of God, it's leading us to that kind of attitude. Conflicts, I talked about this before, can be like a fire. They may start small, but they can grow to do great damage. And if, if especially if they're not, there's, a, maybe you heard about this, one of the wildfires in Southern California was started by a smoke bomb at a gender reveal party. Yeah, and actually the couple who did it, they're, they're now facing um, 30 crimes, including involuntary manslaughter. So a small little spark from a, a little party has led to a great forest fire that cost the lives of, of firemen. That's what conflicts can do. I had uh, two people I knew from different parts of my life. They were two sisters, but I didn't know that at first. Um, and because one, one had a different, you know, maiden name or had the, I didn't know her maiden name. So when I found out they were sisters, I said, oh, you guys must, you know, you still live in the same town. You must see each other. Nope. They had not talked in many years. There had been some conflict in their family. And the one sister wouldn't talk to the other. I'm like, wow. And it was weird to know both of them and to know more about what the other sister was doing than than had gone. Uh, maybe you've seen situations like that where that conflict just won't die. We had sh- start, started that video, right? And we saw how a little argument, right? That, and and the, the last question is, why does it always have to be this way or this hard, he said? Right? The good news is it doesn't. And we want to show as we go through this this time that there can be a different way. There are ways to, to seek peace and to, to work through some of these conflicts. And so to, to start that, I want to show the video again played out a little differently. And what I want you to do is watch for, for what goes differently this time. And in our discussion groups, and I would invite you all to be a part of the discussion groups. We're, we're going through this workbook and, you know, it's a chance to, in a small group, discuss it. If, if you want to do one, I know there's still room on Wednesday nights for a men's, couples, and women's small group. If you're interested in joining us for that, it's still time to get a workbook and, and go through that. But in your groups then, if we don't have time to talk today, is wh- what is different about these, these two situations? So go ahead and play the, the next video. Hey there. Hey. So I'm trying to decide what to do for vacation this year. Oh, yeah? What do you think we should do? Good question. I was actually thinking that this year we could go see my folks. We haven't seen them in a while. Well, what do you think? I think we should go to the beach again this year. I want to relax. We had a good time last year. It's, it's fun. If we go see your folks, your mom, your mom. Work's been hard this year. This has been just 
a tough year, and we got our parents, I won't be able to relax. I want to go to the beach. I know. Okay? I know it's been a rough year, especially because of work, and I know you need to relax, and if my mom's around, you can't always do that, but you know how sick my dad is. I mean, I really thought this would be the perfect opportunity for our whole family to go and spend some quality time with him while we can. I know how important it is to see your dad. And I know we don't have much more time with him. All right, well, I wonder if we should do that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Well, I don't want you to not get the break that you need. I mean, the beach was great for our whole family last year. I just wish you got longer than two weeks. What if um, you you take the kids and you go see your folks? But you take the them for a week. Point... No, no, hold on. And then the the last couple of days, I come up, and then after that, we can take the kids to the beach for a week. I mean, it's kind of choppy, but uh, I think it works. Yeah, I think. I think it sounds great. Okay. Um, you get to spend quality time with your dad. We get to take the kids to the beach and relax. And I only have to see your mom for a couple of days. <laughs> as long as you're good for being away a few weeks, then it's good for everybody. Yes, I think this sounds like the perfect solution. This is really important to me. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head up to bed. You coming? Yeah, I guess so. So their solution is not rocket science, right? It, but they couldn't get to the solution in the midst of this. And so the point was that we would like you to draw from that video is that there is hope, but, but go back, you know, when you get a chance, what, what was the difference in attitude? that made that solution possible. Because God wants better for his people. He wants us to, to learn, learn better. Um, but one of the problems is it's, the solution's not in us. Right? All of us could be that, that guy or that, that woman in that, that, the first video. Right? We, it's not in us naturally to do better. We need, we need to learn it from a source beyond us. And that's why just a few verses to end with. Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. See, we, we learn by, by experiencing his grace in our lives. We, we learn to forgive because we recognize we are a people who've been forgiven. And that though we deserve to be like Cain, cast away from God for all of our lives, for all eternity, he had mercy upon us. He came to us through Jesus. And he's brought us into a relationship. He brought forgiveness and grace into our lives. And if he did that for us, that could give us the power to do that in the lives of others. How does knowing you have received mercy um, that you did not deserve, how, ha- how has that or how could that change your attitude toward other people who may not deserve mercy either? Another verse talks about how God 
says in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So he brought us into relationship with him. But then says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. The God who created the universe is a God who delights in reconciliation. That word, reconciliation means to bring back together two parties who are meant to be together. God is the God who created everything. That's his heart to, to, to bring peace. And he, he makes us, when we turn to him, he makes us into agents of reconciliation. That's what it means to serve in, in the kingdom of God, to be an agent of reconciliation. Now there's a, another word for an agent of reconciliation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God could say sons or daughters of God. And we, like the sons of daughters, when we pursue peace in our relationships, when we even foster that between others, when we become that agent of God within the world that's fostering this kind of peace, we are showing what God is like. We're we're displaying the heart of our Father. And then lastly, John 17. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's kind of giving them the plan of what's going to happen. And it says how he's going to be with them, you know, in this, in this, through the Spirit. It says, I in them and you in me, um, meaning he's talking to God. It's said as a prayer. So God, God's in Jesus and now Jesus is going to be, or God's going to be in the disciples so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, that God sent Jesus and have loved them even as you have loved me. So there's something pretty startling in that. How will the world evaluate Jesus? After Jesus has, has left the world, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, right? How will the world evaluate Jesus? Well, they, they can read about him in the Bible, but most of the world won't do that. How will they evaluate Jesus? They'll watch what his people do. And specifically it says here that it is our unity as, as followers of Jesus that will help them know that Jesus came from God. They'll decide whether Jesus is the Son of God based on how Christians are interacting with one another, based on whether we're really agents of peace or whether that's just, you know, or whether we're like everyone else in the world and whether we handle conflict the same as all other peoples. But what if they see something different in those who put their faith in Jesus? That's that's the hope this morning. Not if they see us as perfect, not that we're like Ned Flanders, you know, who's who's a so relig- religiosity that, you know, oh, that doesn't impress them but that would impress them if they see how we can actually love one another and treat each other and work through the natural conflicts that happen in every, in every situation. That is what we're about here at East Glenville. Our mission statement is we are um, learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. And so my prayer as we go through this series th- that we'll do better that we'll learn how to do our mission statement 
um, and live it out in this world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who seeks reconciliation, that you did not just write us off when we had walked away from you, that whether it's humanity as a whole or each of us as individuals, when we had turned away from you in our hearts, you sought to bring us back into relationship with you. And I pray that each one of us here would learn that we would know that, that we would experience that in our hearts, and that we'd learn to share that with others. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song. It is an old hymn that may be familiar with an added chorus. So sing out when you can.